Hi everyone, I'm Chris, one of the pastors at The Way, and today we are ending our mini-series in the book of Ephesians called A Better Way. And in the passage we're studying today, we're going to hear about what is improper for God's holy people. And I want to key in on that word holy. The word holy and its derivatives are found over 500 times in the Bible. Holiness is about moral purity. Holiness is about being set apart. To be a holy people means to be a people set apart, a people who stick out in the crowd. We are meant to be, as followers of Jesus, set apart for the plans and purposes of God, set apart in how we live our lives in response to his love. We're called to be holy repeatedly. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3, tells us that in love, God predestined us to be holy and blameless in his sight. In chapter four, we're told to be made new in the attitude of our minds and to put on our new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We're called to be imitators of God, to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. That holiness is not a prerequisite for receiving God's love. Holiness is meant to be a product of receiving God's love. God says to his people again and again, I want you to be set apart. I want you to be set apart in how you steward your anger. I want you to be set apart in how you talk about people who bother you. I want you to be set apart in how you treat your enemies. I want you to be set apart in how you love your neighbor and fight for uh, those who are oppressed and fight against racism. I want you to be set apart in how you forgive those who wound you. I want you to be set apart in how you work and play and laugh and love. I want you to be set apart in how you view your sexuality set apart, holy. Last week, we sung the song, Refiner's Fire, and the lyrics go like this. It says, Refiner's Fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I love that lyric. My heart's one desire is to be holy. I remember as a 20-year-old, like brand new to following Jesus, hearing that song, singing that song with such passion in my heart, really longing to be holy and pleasing to the heart of God, that God wants us to be holy, and I want to want what God wants for my life. And holiness is less about morality. It's more about worship who is our God, and mission, who we represent to the world. And in the second half of Ephesians, this ancient letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, a letter we've been studying for months now, in the second half, holiness is described to us with vivid terms. It's like we're It's like we're living sculptures and God is using his word as a chisel to shave away the parts of our lives that don't look like him. And the end result is beautiful, holy as he is holy. But the process can be a little painful. And some of us have experienced that. If you're exploring Christianity, if you're asking questions about faith, and life, and you find yourself participating in this service, this is what we believe God is inviting you towards, holiness. Holiness that leads to a profound happiness and wholeness in the end. 
So let me just read to you the short section of scripture we're studying today. Starting in Ephesians 5 verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy, there's our word, people. As followers of Jesus, live a life of love. Imitate God as dearly loved children, all in response to what Jesus has done for us, right? We don't obey God so that God will love us. He loves us and his love enables us to obey him, to live a life of love in response to his love. But then he goes on to say, the Apostle Paul writes, but among you, there must not be a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And let me just start with greed. Greed is keeping all we get. Greed is an insatiable desire for more. Greed is a closed fist instead of an open hand. Greed is the opposite of generosity. As Tim Keller points out, in the first century, people were stingy with their money and generous with their bodies. They kept their money, but they gave their bodies away. God's holy people are called to be other, different, set apart. We're called to be generous with our money and stingy with our bodies. That God cares about the boardroom and the bedroom. God cares about corporations and character, our public self and our private self, our money and our monogamy. Holiness extends to it all. There must not be a hint of greed or sexual immorality and impurity. Now, sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. And the original meaning of this Greek word before the time of the New Testament, it meant to prostitute or sell. It was almost an economic term, in a sense condemning using people as sexual commodities, as objects to be used instead of as image bearers of God to be loved. It's no surprise that the word porneia is the root word for our English word pornography. Now by the time of the New Testament, this, this word had a much broader meaning. Jesus uses it more than once in his teaching. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, Jesus says this, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, ran out of fingers, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. So Jesus says sexual immorality is an evil, right? It misses God's mark. It departs from his, his standard of goodness. He says it's an evil that comes from within and defiles us. And because Jesus says sexual immorality is an evil, Paul says there shouldn't be a hint of it amongst God's holy people. So Jesus and Paul agree. Now, what does this word mean in the New Testament? One commentator writes, the word porneia 
is used of deviant sexual conduct normally thought of as extramarital relationships. You can see all the scripture references there, including incest. Another Bible commentator writes, porneia is a broad word covering any sexual sin. It can refer to incest, promiscuity, uh, sexual relations with a prostitute. It is also used figuratively of apostasy, right? Removing yourself from the true faith, that's apostasy, or idolatry, the worship of a false god, because of the Old Testament image of Yahweh as the husband of his people. A strong concordance, which is a Greek lexicon, describes it as having a broader usage in biblical times. When used literally, it includes prostitution, adultery, and incest. Figuratively, it means idolatry or sexual intercourse between unmarried persons. Now, what's fascinating, it's, I guess it's fascinating, uh, it's not uncommon to find articles where some people will say, yes, sexual immorality refers to exploitive types of sexual behavior, right? Violent sexual acts, acts of prostitution, acts connected with temple worship and things like adultery. And that's all true. And most people in our day would agree with that. But then they'll say in these articles, it doesn't refer though to premarital sex. Like you can swipe right to the glory of God. Have sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend if you want. When they stand, well, how, how did you feel about it, right? Holiness might mean to be set apart, but not in this area. Sexual immorality refers to all kinds of sexual activity except the kind we most want to do. And something about that seems a little suspicious. It's a bit unconvincing to me. In first century Judaism, porneia is sexual activity outside of marriage, which the New Testament defines as a covenantal commitment made before God and others between a man and a woman to be a living illustration of the relationship Jesus has within the church. Now, Jesus often challenges the prevailing view of his contemporaries. Like Jesus challenged how his contemporaries treated those who were mild or mired, I should say, trapped in sexual sin. We love that about Jesus. He goes out and he embraces us in all our brokenness and we should embrace others. But the reality is the challenge for us is there's zero evidence that he challenged the common first century understanding of porneia and every indication that he upheld it. He had a very conservative sexual ethic. And we say, that sounds different. That sounds set apart. That will make you stick out in a crowd. And something in us just fights against it. And so let's take a deep breath for a moment. Don't check out on me. Stick with me. And let's talk about boundaries. When I was two, I stuck a nail into a light socket and I got a nasty shock. And I learned that electricity is good and powerful, but also harmful when used improperly. And to protect me, because I guess I was sticking things where they didn't belong, um, my parents got those plastic covers. In other words, they created a boundary. And without boundaries, 
none of us would have survived into our teen years, right? And as a teenager, even though I, I spent a lot of time rebelling against boundaries, like I didn't leave them behind when I graduated high school and, and you know, earned a degree and, and moved out of the house and got married, right? Adults need boundaries too. Boundaries keep us from overworking and burning out. Boundaries keep us from abusive situations and relationships that are unhealthy. Uh, boundaries keep us safe and whole and contribute to human flourishing. Like even when it comes to our sexuality, or especially when it comes to our sexuality, boundaries are good. Our culture believes in consent, right? For, for a sexual act to be appropriate, it's about consent, it's about harm. Do no harm, get consent, right? For a sexual act to be appropriate or moral, both parties must give consent. Consent is about boundaries. Consent is good. Therefore, boundaries can be good. In other words, we all believe in drawing the line somewhere when it comes to our most intimate acts. For us, for others, for the flourishing of the community, we believe in boundaries. When it comes to sexuality, our problem, the problem for us, is not boundaries. We all believe in boundaries. Our culture's problem is where Scripture draws the lines. And as we just witnessed and heard, Scripture draws the lines much tighter than our culture tends to draw the lines, which is why there's a tension that we all feel. Scripture draws the lines and the boundaries much tighter than our culture. And when I say our culture, I mean our Western culture. And when I say our Western culture, I mean certain vocal segments of our Western culture. Other cultures in the world might think that Christian teaching on sexuality is great, or maybe not strict enough, right? Our culture's objections to the historic biblical teaching are very recent and very Western. And to universalize our culture's objections is to give them almost like some type of moral enlightenment or authority not possessed by other cultures or traditions or the billions of other non-white people who disagree with the permissive sexual ethic of the West. And our culture tends to respond, at least online, like, well, those people are misguided and backwards. Let's cancel them or change them or let's evangelize them with our good news of sexual liberation. Let's impose our ideas of sexuality on their cultures and religions like Islam and Christianity. And all of it sounds like ethnocentrism. It sounds like colonialism. It sounds like ideological imperialism and hegemony. It sounds like all the things the progressive West says it hates, especially about church history. But I guess we give ourselves a pass when it comes to our culture's ideas about sexual expression. We can impose that on others, and if they don't agree, they are morally backward and regressive. That's our culture. We like our boundaries. We will promote our boundaries and burn our heretics online, metaphorically, right? But we just don't like the boundaries of Scripture. But listen, what if, what if they're for our good, our collective good? Like, what if our culture has a massive blind spot, would we at least be willing to consider it? 
Like, what if God knows better where to draw the lines than we do? What if we can't always trust ourselves about where to draw the line? I mean, I know that's a modern heresy, you know, you can't trust yourselves, but there's so much evidence for how often we deceive ourselves, confirmation bias. Like, what if God knows better where to draw the lines than we do? It's worth considering. Let's take another pause and a breath. And in case I haven't already offended you or the teaching of scripture hasn't already offended you, here's my best shot to do it in the next section. So, you know, prepare yourself. Some of us grew up in church youth groups. We grew up in church and right now we're feeling really rattled because some of this feels like the purity culture in church that we grew up in and it kind of messed us up. Like Paul says, there shouldn't be a hint of impurity. There shouldn't be a hint of anything that defiles us in the presence of God. And the opposite of impurity is purity. So we should desire purity. But what happens in the church again and again is that humans add all these rules and ideas to this teaching and they create this whole purity culture with purity rings, all in this attempt to just keep their kids from not doing it. And in the process, they end up sending some wrong messages. And here are a few ways, a few ideas that need to be challenged and refined. When we talk about the New Testament teaching about sexual immorality, this is not what we're talking about. But this is what some people received. Not all. I'm not universalizing this. But some. Some of you will identify with this. Uh, first, people picked up on the idea that sex is nasty and vile and should be avoided until you find the one you really love and marry them, which is a hard flip to switch from this is something really negative, really bad that I have to avoid to green light. It caused some people to hate their sexuality instead of receiving it as a beautiful gift from God to be stewarded well. That sex is not God to be worshipped. It's not gross, but it is this gift from God to be stewarded well, a beautiful gift, a gift that's bigger than just the sexual act. But some people didn't receive that. Growing up, there was this impression that it was something like negative, to be overcome, to be avoided at all costs. Uh, here's another thing. Second, it skewed our view of sin and conviction. And so people felt way worse about masturbation than they did about greed or gossip or pride. They just felt like losers and failures about something the Bible doesn't even mention. It's like people are dying of malnutrition and we just feel terrible um, about masturbation, especially teenagers. And so it kind of skewed our view of sin and conviction. Third, it often placed too much of the responsibility for male purity on the shoulders or necklines of young women, often causing a lot of shame around the female body. Fourth, it made promises that weren't biblical, as if purity when you're single would guarantee a certain type of sex life or marriage in the future, right? Like, if we wait to have sex, sex and marriage will be awesome. That was the promise that many people heard as like a guarantee. And maybe it's true. Or maybe 
it will really hurt for the first several years and be pretty awkward. And maybe in year 10, you really hit your groove, but people didn't hear that. They were disillusioned. They felt lied to. It also created this impression where like, if you have sex before marriage, it won't be fun or your sex in marriage will be ruined. And that's not necessarily true either. Fifth, purity culture often idolized both sex, marriage, and virginity at times. So the key to human flourishing became sexual intimacy in marriage rather than intimacy with Christ and his people, whether married or single. And then lastly, uh, it underemphasized the beauty of God's grace in the messiness of our lives. I remember one speaker who got up to talk about purity to hundreds of teenagers. And right at the start of his talk, he passed out this rose and he asked them to examine it and touch the beautiful petals and then pass it along all throughout the room. And he went on to talk about STDs and, and why you should not have sex before marriage or else. And then at the end of the talk, he asked for the rose back. And as you can imagine, it was mangled. Like it was nothing compared to its former beauty. It was falling apart. And then the speaker said, who would want the rose now? And he dropped it on the floor and walked off the stage. Just feel this weight come into the room. People hanging their heads in shame. It's been passed around. It's lost its value. Who would want it now? And the answer is, Jesus would. Jesus would. You have not lost your value to him. You've not lost your value. It's, you know, Jesus would want the rose. And so would those who understand the grace of Jesus. I remember meeting with a young woman who'd become a new Christian. And she'd been with a lot of guys earlier in her life. And she wondered out loud to me if she could wear white with integrity on her wedding day. And I said, yes, yes, you can wear white. Jesus died to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness, to give us a new beginning and a fresh start. Of course you can wear white. One day we will all wear white, not because of our goodness, but because of his grace. His purity will make us finally and fully pure. How beautiful is that? And so when we talk about sexual immorality or purity, we want to avoid all that. There were so many problems with, with purity culture. And because of that, you know, people have reacted. This happens all the time. People have reacted and swung and to the point where they're, they're actually chucking out the, the actual teaching of Jesus and embracing, you know, rejecting purity culture, but embracing a permissive sexual ethic that looks more like culture. But the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul and historic Christianity is different from purity culture in the church and the permissive attitude of culture. Because culture just says, hey, you know, do what you want as long as you don't harm anybody. People should do what they want, live how they want, say what they want, provided they don't harm anybody. And that sounds pretty good, right? Just don't harm anyone. 
The problem is we tend to ignore the fact that our definitions of harm are influenced by our views about the nature of reality and the human person and the hyper-individualism of the West. If one believes in God and the soul, factoring in God's perspective and insight would be crucial to a proper definition of harm. There's nothing more ultimately harmful than hardening our hearts to what God desires for our lives, to miss out on the reason for which we were created. Yet people apply this harm principle assuming there's no God or that God hasn't revealed himself to humanity or that no human soul exists. So our definition of harm is always incomplete. It doesn't factor in God and it becomes futile in the language of the Apostle Paul. That God exists. God has revealed himself in Jesus. And Jesus has put boundaries around our sexuality. Now we've all done this. We've all put boundaries around our sexuality. But God has drawn the lines tighter than most of us would. And we resist it. But what if it's for our good and our flourishing? And the flourishing of society? When I consider the rate of sexual abuse in our day and women I know who were hurt by it. When I study the number of STDs prevalent amongst young adults, when I'm saddened by the amount of unwanted and terminated pregnancies, when I'm appalled by the money spent on pornography, billions, billions, and billions of dollars, when I think about how many people have been victims of sexual violence, when I think about how many children have suffered from the sexual choices of adults and the collateral damage of infidelity, when I think about all the problems surrounding consent on our university campuses and in hookup culture where alcohol is involved, when I think about the continual objectification of both sexes and sex trafficking globally and its connection to pornography and people being prostituted, when I reflect on where swiping right on Tinder actually gets you, when I'm surprised about the lack of sexual satisfaction people are reporting in studies about their free and liberated sex lives, when I think about sex as more than a physical act, not just the joining of bodies, but the mingling of souls, when I look at the faces of my children, my beautiful son and daughter, I'm drawn to one conclusion. We need a better way. And you may reject the Christian sexual ethic. Some of us will. But what is your solution to all those issues? That would be a great conversation to have. Because the Christian ethic, when lived faithfully, as described in Scripture, deals with all of that. We need a better way a different way, a way that sticks out in the crowd. And the vision behind the Christian view of sex is that we would learn to make love in a context of security and trust and intimacy. That we would symbolize with our bodies what is true in regard to the rest of our lives. We are one physically because we're one covenantally before God and people. We're symbolizing with our bodies what's true about the rest of our lives. That sex is meant to reinforce what is true about the rest of our lives, not tell a lie. And every time we come together, we're renewing that covenantal 
oneness. We're allowing our bodies to make a promise that our vows commit us to keeping. The idea is that people would come into marriage like inexperienced so that, you know, they can learn to make love without this long, clingy trail of broken hearts and a catalog of encounters from which to compare and evaluate their new lifelong partner. It's meant to safeguard the ability to say to one another, like, oh, the wide variety of human beings that populate this planet, I have chosen you. No one else will discover me like you, unwrap me like you, explore me like you. You are my sole definition of beauty. And in the end, all true romance is fueled by this kind of exclusivity. No one dreams about a person saying to him or her, I love you with some of my heart or I can't stop thinking about you and your roommate. That's not romantic, because love is fueled by exclusivity, and so is true intimacy. This is what the biblical teaching is trying to give us, not just for a relationship that lasts for a season, but also for a lifetime. And I know sometimes it doesn't work out, and it's very painful. You went after that and it didn't happen or it ended in heartbreak and you're picking up the pieces and I'm very sorry. But I wonder if there isn't just a little bit of us left and maybe not, maybe you just want to yell at me, but I wonder if there isn't just a little bit of us left that still thinks that vision, it's really, really beautiful and good and true. Not a hint of sexual immorality or impurity amongst God's holy people. Now the point of a message like this is to start a conversation, not end one. In fact, Whether you view this as the start of a conversation or the end of a conversation will drastically impact your emotional experience of this message. For me, it's the start of a conversation. For some of us, this talk is another reminder. It is for me. It's it's a reminder of all the ways we fall short. Like all the ways we have messed this up, which is like most of us, all of us, right? Like... There's always this gap between the ideal and the real. There's a gap between God's ideal in scripture and the reality of our lives. And we feel that gap right now. I mean, we feel that gap when it comes to our sexuality, right? There's God's ideal expressed by Jesus. And then there's the reality of our lives. We've all messed this up. This past week is not the last time we'll mess it up either. There's the ideal of scripture and the reality of our lives. And then there's a gap. And this gap creates tension. It creates guilt. It creates shame. And guilt and shame is not bad when we've sinned, but we're not meant to live there. We're meant to move on from that into grace. And the question is, like, what do we do with the gap? What do we do with the, the, di- the distance between the ideal and the reality of our lives? Western culture and some churches tend to want to change the ideal. Traditional culture and some churches tend to want to hide the real, the mess, 
the struggle, the falling short. Neither is the New Testament solution to the gap. The New Testament teaching says, keep the ideal. It's God's ideal. Keep the ideal and then confess the real. Just go, yeah, I'm I'm falling short. I'm struggling. And then fill the gap between the two with the grace and mercy of God that changes us and transforms us over time. That we're still Ephesians 1. We're chosen. We're adopted. We're redeemed. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are loved. Sin won't get the first word or the last word. It only gets the middle word in our lives. God's love gets the first word and the last word over our lives. And his love, in his love, he has predestined us to be holy and blameless in his sight. And he will do it. Holy. Set apart in every area of our lives. And so as a church, may our hearts desire be towards holiness. May we be a people set apart for his plans and purposes in every area of our lives. Amen.